Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. When Ellen Sachs was writing what later became a best-selling memoir on her battles with schizophrenia, a good friend of hers tried to convince her to do it anonymously. It was hardly an unreasonable argument. After all, Ellen's a highly regarded legal scholar, and her friend was naturally worried that all her professional accomplishments would become overshadowed by her personal revelations. Or, as her friend trenchantly put it, do you want to become known as the schizophrenic with a job? In the end, though, Ellen felt that the memoir couldn't possibly have the impact she hoped it might without frankly telling her story. And so she courageously plunged in and candidly revealed all. Happily, and perhaps unsurprisingly given her insightful character, Ellen was bang on. More happily still, as it happens, her career hardly suffered, to put it mildly. Two years after her memoir was published, she received a prestigious MacArthur Foundation Fellowship and became founder and director of the Sachs Institute for Mental Health Law, Policy, and Ethics at USC, significantly increasing many key aspects of our understanding of both law and policy of mental illness. So uh, I wanted to talk about, obviously, issues concerning awareness of mental illness, societal uh, attitudes and perspectives, and development and of, of our understanding, uh, positively, negatively, what have you. Aspects of first-person accounts, how things feel, to try to get a, a deeper understanding of these issues. But most importantly, I'm motivated to understand what we should do as a society, what policies should be invoked, what laws should be invoked. Right. Practically, uh, some sort of prescription for what would, where we should be at least moving towards if we right. can't realize it in the short term. And uh, you seemed like an ideal person to talk to because of your personal experiences, because of your extremely candid and very insightful memoir. Thank you. Um, and also, of course, because you're a law professor and because right. you've worked uh, significantly on aspects of developing laws, implementing laws, commenting on laws, and you clearly would have uh, a very strong understanding of, uh, of things, both from the, the first person perspective and, and from the objective perspective. Yeah. So I'm expecting big things here. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> um, so I thought first what we would talk about is we would move towards the personal okay. with an understanding of shedding light on what it is that we're talking about, dispelling illusions about mental illness, giving people a sense of what's happening. Um, and I can begin by, by uh, expressing my fascination with aspects of your memoir, in fact, the entire memoir, which I think was, uh, I'm sounding terribly sycophantic, but I really think it was very well written. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And 
for someone like myself who hasn't spent a lot of time thinking about mental illness, mm -hmm. who might have imbibed some false stereotypes without right. recognizing it, right. it was very, very refreshing to get a different perspective. And I was struck by a couple of things. I was struck by the fact that you had managed to accomplish so much. I mean, you had this, you had your degree at Vanderbilt, and then you went off to Oxford, and you did another degree, and then you went to Yale and went to um, and did a, did a law degree, and you did all of that through these incredibly traumatic and difficult circumstances, and I just wouldn't have thought that such a thing was possible. Is that, in your experience, hugely unusual, or are there other you know, significantly other people who have done similar sorts of things? It's sort of interesting, because I uh, undertook to study this. So there's a study that I'm doing with UCLA and USC on, quote, high-achieving people with schizophrenia. And what we do is we get our subjects, we ensure that they have the diagnosis, and then we do a couple of interviews with them about what their illness looks like and the kinds of things they do to keep themselves sane. When I used to go on the road with my story, people would say, oh, you're unique. There aren't other people like you. But we got 20 people fairly quickly, two MDs, a really? JD, a PhD candidate, a school teacher, a CEO of a not-for-profit, um, full-time students, full-time caregivers. So. There, there are people out there like me. I asked the PI, the principal investigator, Steve Martyr, who's a well-known schizophrenia expert, what percentage of people with schizophrenia um, are high-functioning? And he said, well, I'm not sure, Ellen, but the real question is how many could be if we really invested resources into their care? Hmm. And I thought that was exactly the right answer. Uh, so, And of the people uh, we know uh, who have managed to achieve uh, such high standards despite the fact that we haven't been investing uh, sufficient right. resources. Are there some commonalities that you can point to other than the fact that they've achieved, obviously? Um, you know, it's sort of interesting. Um, people talk about different ways they manage their illness. So, you know, it could be through avoiding stress or avoiding travel, avoiding drugs and alcohol, um, you know, keeping your environment simple so you don't get overstimulated. Some people's spirituality is important. Um, one thing that interested me was how many people said, when I was given the diagnosis, my parents said, you can't let that stop you do what, doing what you want to do anyway. You know, go forward, do well, don't give up, don't reduce your expectations. And that seemed to, I'm sure there are parents who do that and the kids can't right. succeed anyway. But in many of our subjects, that was in the background. And I thought that was quite interesting. The sense of reinforcement. And you also talk, what's striking about your book is how many people you met along the way who have supported you. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's astounding. And, and it, uh, to be completely personal, it was, it was a little bit alarming because I thought, I don't have anywhere near the number of people that you seem to have. It's actually a symptom of schizophrenia, one, one of the negative symptoms to not be well-related, not to have friends in your life. And people ask, sometimes students who have the illness ask me, well, how do you make friends? And I don't really know what to say except to say, you know, be a good friend, and then that's a way to make friends. But... Um, I'm incredibly lucky that I had that in my life because it gives my life a kind of richness and meaning. And it's also another set of eyes to observe if I'm starting to slip because sometimes my friends can see it before I can see it. Right. But and not only um, friendship, but romance. I, went, I basically went 18 years with a couple of dates in the middle. I was too tormented by my demons to have a relationship and had the usual psychological mishigas. But eventually I uh, became interested in dating again and found my husband and fell in love and we got married. In our 40s, we kid around that we just skipped the first marriage. <laughs> but that's a really uh, big and important part of, part of my life, too, and something sure. I never expected to have. 
And this idea of, uh, on the one side, uh, being supported by one's family, as you right. said, um, there was a bit of a twist in your story uh -huh. uh, with respect to the idea of, so my words, obviously, but aspects of denial to, to the right. notion of denial, the efficacy of medicine, denying medication, denying the uh, the, the necessity or, uh, of that, and there was this weird thing that happened to you, and you were put in this drug treatment program. center or program, even right. though you, I think you had smoked one joint or something like that. <laughs> A I few joints, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but throughout this idea that, um, uh, that medication is a bad thing and you should be strong, you should be able to somehow right. triumph without medication, um, which, which was a, a, a very strong theme throughout your book, as I understood it, coming to grips with the understanding of the necessity of, of right. aspects of, of medication, I would think that would be fairly widespread amongst many people. Uh, so it seems to me this. that medication resistance and refusal has three sources. One, people don't like the side effects. To me, if the choice is between drooling at night and being psychotic, I'm going to take drooling at night. A lot of people gain weight. I gained about 20 pounds. If I gained 100 pounds, maybe I'd feel differently. The second thing is people feel good on the medication and they think they're better. They don't need it anymore and right. they stop and then they find out that they do. And then the third thing, which is what most affected me and I think affects many people, is what we call in the business the narcissistic injury of having an illness and needing treatment. So the way that I could prove that it was all some terrible mistake, that I wasn't really mentally ill, was by getting off the medication and doing well. So I tried and tried and tried. When I look back, I'm sorry I wasn't smarter sooner. At the same time, I'm glad that I wasn't you know, literally forced. Um, so and the other thing I'd like to say about medication and psych patients is we're not the only people who don't like medication. So sure. there are those undergraduate psychology class studies where the investigators stand outside an elevator in a medical office building and count how many people throw away their prescriptions before they get in the elevator. <laughs> Probably a lot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so getting back to this question of what you would have done differently had you mm -hmm. known, mm -hmm. um, what else could you say? Is there is there... If you if you if you knew now what you uh, if you knew then what you know now, yeah. Uh, what, how would you have how would you have acted? I, you know, I don't think in any other way. I think I got very benefited from psychoanalytic therapy four right. to five times a week. I'm, I've been trained. I know the theories it's supposed to end. I'm a lifer. I don't want to take the risk of decompensating if I don't have it. Um, so the therapy was extremely important. Friends and family were important and an accommodating and stimulating workplace. And all of those things came together to help me like avoid my, quote, grave prognosis. I mean, I was expected to be unable to live independently, let alone to work. And obviously, that hasn't turned out to be my life. Sure. And I want to talk a little bit more about medication because okay. you mentioned the side effects. And uh, my understanding is the medication has improved considerably insofar as the diminishment of side effects Correct. are concerned. Um, does it still have a long, long way to go, or, or where are we on the on in terms of more and more effective beneficial medication? Well, we have beneficial medication. It all has risks and side effects. Right. Um, you know, so you, I mean, basically, what you want is a magic pill. You take it once and you're cured. Right. And we're very far from that. Um, but the meds that we do have, you know, if they're used appropriately, are usually fairly successful in, in helping people manage their symptoms. Again, they do have side effects, though. Right. When, when you were writing about your psychotic episodes, mm -hmm. um, there's something very, very bracing as a reader. Mm -hmm. you, you're, you're reading this and you feel like you are uh, 
in the mind of the person who is experiencing these episodes, which of course is the whole idea. That's what I wanted to do. Yeah. And I'm wondering, as you were writing them, mm. was it difficult for you? Because I'm trying to imagine, here is this person who's writing this as somebody who's clearly not experiencing these episodes. You're f feeling fine. You're writing these things right. down. In the meantime, you ha have experienced them yourself. Was there, was it, were there aspects of anguish for you to be writing it, to be taking simultaneously this third person and first person account of what you were going through? Well, I do sometimes have symptoms now. I'm not totally cured. No, know? no, I understand that. Okay. But at the time when you're actually writing this, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, saying you're you not know, experiencing one of right, these episodes. At that right? moment, right, right, right. You know, it's sort of interesting because, you know, people say that. Did you relive the experiences? It wasn't painful and horrible. And what I like to say, and this analogy is much more extreme than, than my situation, but Holocaust survivors. When you have trauma, there are different ways of coping with it. Some people want to go back to the scene of the crime, observe it, take it in. And some people want to stay as far away as possible. But what I did was the first. So I reviewed my past, um, and it was not traumatic at all. In fact, I felt really good that I was doing so well, given what might have happened. And I saw certain patterns that I hadn't known. Um, so, so by and large, it was, it was a completely benign and actually helpful experience. So what sort of patterns did you see? What and you said you saw certain patterns, and it was... It was well, it became, as an example, it became very clear how vulnerable I was to disappointment and how I am much more strong, much stronger now. Um, mm -hmm. So that's an example. Okay. Um, this idea of, of having these negatively directed thoughts towards mm -hmm. yourself and mm -hmm. feeling that you were unworthy and feeling right. that you didn't deserve to be in, in the position you were in to, to an extreme version when you were right. having these, these episodes. Is that common? Is that, is that yeah. something that most, most people... Well, no. I mean, people have schizophrenia, have different kinds of, you know, some people Sure, have but is that CIA. statistically calm? Like, does it happen Yeah, I think lots? it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is. Yeah. Okay. I want to... Uh, um, if you want me to kind of describe a psychotic experience, I can try to do that. I, I think you should go right ahead. This is a free-flowing conversation. <laughs> and sometimes it's difficult for me because um, I have, of course, read your memoir, but many people have not. Of uh, course. Not, not very many, because it did very well. well <laughs> but some people have not, or might have forgotten. So, yes, if you could, that would be great. So to me, a psychotic episode, the best analogy is a waking nightmare. And you have all the bizarre images, the impossible things happening, and the utter, utter terror. Only with a nightmare, you can sit up in bed, open your eyes, and make it go away, and no such luck with a psychotic episode. And for me, I have my psychosis, because everybody gets psychotic in her or his own way, involves delusions. Like, I'll frequently have the thought that I've killed hundreds of thousands of people with my thoughts, or that a nuclear explosion is going to go off in my brain. Hallucinations. I had occasional auditory hallucinations more frequent visual hallucinations at night where I would kind of sit up in bed and see someone standing at the foot of my bed and think, oh my God, I hope that's a hallucination. <laughs> Haven't had any of those since I got on the atypical antipsychotics. Mm -hmm. And then disorganized and confused thinking. So I was on the roof of the Yale Law School having a breakdown and I said to my classmates, are you having the same experience I have of our cases having the words jumping around? I think someone has to case the joint. I don't believe in joints, but they do hold your body together. So words that are like loosely associated to each other, but put together make no sense. Those are called positive symptoms of schizophrenia. The negative symptoms are apathy, withdrawal, inability to work, inability to form relationships. And except for the first couple of years I was ill, I've been blessedly spared those negative symptoms. And the negative symptoms actually create a lot of the burden of the illness because it just leaves people non-functional and unhappy. Right. And when you look at these positive symptoms, when you look back now, as, uh -huh. you're, as you're talking, can you, you have complete recollection of what it is that you said? Yeah, do you, do you, yeah. and you, you have I recall is the way anybody recalls who's writing a memoir. Some of the things you remember the exact words, sure. some are the ideas, you know, the feeling or whatever. 
Yeah, some people with psychotic episodes have amnesia for their episodes, and I've never been that lucky. <laughs> I remember all the details, <laughs> all the horrible details. Okay. And so it's as if, as you're looking back, there are these things that you're saying, but you somehow can't stop yourself from right. saying them or, or something like that. Well, you know, actually, I mean, one of the reasons I've been successful professionally is I've, even if I believed my beliefs were true, I always knew what people would think sounded crazy. Right. And I didn't want to appear crazy, so, so I did not say it. it out loud. Right. Or if I could not say it out loud, I stayed home. So another obvious question that I'm sure you've been asked a lot is, it must have been very difficult for you to have written this memoir in your, uh, in your situation and, and, and come publicly clean. Obviously, the people around you uh, right. knew about this, but to do right. it to a larger public, given your... Given your status and your situation in society, right. it must have been a—it must have been something that you wrestled with a little bit. I did, I did, and I had—I have a friend who's a geriatric psychiatrist emeritus. She said, "Do it under a pseudonym," and I said, "Why?" She says, "Well, do you want to become known as a schizophrenic with a job, right. which is not what I wanted to become known as?" Sure. But I thought I could never write anything that would be possibly more helpful to other people than than to tell my story, and it was worth the risk. And in fact, I've gotten almost nothing but support and kindness um, and thanks. And it's been a wonderful experience, actually. She now says she, she was mistaken when she said I should do well, it. Well, she was mistaken. Yeah, Clearly, she I mean, was, there was yeah. empirical evidence to support Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but that can happen to all of us, of course, being mistaken. Of course. Um, so I, I want to move a little bit into treatment. And okay, I just um, got to keep an eye on the I'm clock. Fine, I'm fine with the... Okay. With the clock. So quarter quarter to twelve. You yeah, or ten to twelve. Ten yeah. to twelve. Okay. okay so I'd like to move a little bit into treatment, and I'd like to talk specifically about psychoanalysis. Sure. Because um, many people, again myself, uh-huh. had the view that well, it used to be that people believed in psychoanalysis. And right. There was these grand glory days of Freud and Jung and so forth and so right. on, and that's that's during the time when nobody really knew what they were doing and right. they had all these theories and now right. we're all scientifically rigorous so we don't need right. any of that stuff anymore right. and in your book it was very very clear that uh, psychoanalysis talk therapy played this huge role for really you did. in terms yeah. of uh, how it was able to keep you if memory serves on a relatively even keel with the the character you named mrs jones who i believe was right. a pseudonym right right um in in um, at Oxford to the extent that if memory serves you weren't on medication then at all and, and it was just it was just that that was actually uh, able to to really uh, achieve wonders in terms of some sense of stability for you right I was very psychotic though I probably should have been on medication sure but, but I, I mean, was just much the, better I was able to work I was able to make exactly. friends yeah the effect that that had it was, it was a non-trivial effect it was a non-trivial effect yeah and and so. Um, Again, I, I recognize that every case or these many cases are very different. Right. But clearly, uh, there's a, a demonstrable need for psychoanalysis done well in some cases based right. upon your experience. See, you know, what I would like to see, I mean, it's hard to study analysis because it's so intensive and so long term. But, you know, the early studies were one thing. I'd like to see a study now where someone is on atypical antipsychotics and being treated by a skilled therapist and whether the the analysis, yeah, gives you a bigger bang for the buck than if you just use the medication. There are I no mean, such studies? No, not really. Not that I know of. I mean, there are early studies showing that it wasn't effective. Right. But, um, Done so poorly, I, presumably. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's expensive, but there are people who are really ill who have resources and might be able to benefit from it. And we have to study, you know, who would and who wouldn't and try to identify those people. I mean, Freud... 
Freud thought there were two reasons, or people post-Freud and Freud thought there were two reasons. Freud thought that people with psychosis couldn't form attachments, and the vehicle of the cure in psychoanalysis is the transference. So if you're too inward-focused, that doesn't work. I don't think that's right. I think most people can form transferences. They could be quite psychotic transferences, but... And then the second thing is that, you know, it promotes regression and you're already too regressed when you're psychotic. So there needs to be a way to manage to like fortify an observing ego at the same time as you're struggling, you're observing and, and managing. Yeah. Um, but for me, you know, the therapy has been enormously helpful. I mean, I can talk about how I think it helps even. Sure. I mean, that's like the $60,000 question with all therapy, how does it help? And for me, Analysis did a bunch of things, and not all of these are specific to analysis, but together I think really packed a big punch. First, stress is bad for any illness, particularly mental illness, and the analysis can help you identify stressors and either cope with them or avoid them. Second, it fortifies an observing ego, where you kind of sit back, observe what's going on in your mind, take it in, and make sense of it. Third, it's a safe place to bring your chaotic and scary and violent thoughts sort of acts like a steam valve. If you say it in the therapy, you don't have to say it in the outside world. Next, I think insight can help. Now, there are different views about psychotic symptoms. One is that they're just random firings of neurons that have no meaning. One is they tell the truth about your psychic reality, but it doesn't help to, for the doctor to say that. And then the third is it tells the truth about your psychic reality, but sometimes patients can benefit from that. And for me, the last was true. Um, so I remember my doctor once in New Haven saying, you know, Ellen, I think you're saying violent and scary things because you're scared yourself. The violence is, is a defense against the fear. And that made sense to me and made it go away. Hmm. And then finally, having a kind, smart, well-meaning, non-judgmental person who accepts you not only for the good but the bad and ugly is enormously empowering. Sure. And another way to think about this is people with, you know, people with schizophrenia, like anybody, ha have uh, 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 work issues and relationship issues that they can work on in therapy. And the trend today in mental health is toward recovery, quote, recovery. So not just remission and reduction of symptoms of quality of life. And importantly, it's for the consumer, her or himself, to say what that is for them. So uh, as you're talking, um, I'm struck by the fact that so much of this seems like it's more of a continuum more of a spectrum Absolutely. than uh, the old days of saying, you know, you have this and right. somebody else has that and you're in this box and I don't have anything to do with that box over well, there. I haven't read it today, but someone just sent me an email that there's a newspaper article about the several different kinds of schizophrenia, eight different kinds of schizophrenia. I don't remember the exact number, which I'm looking forward to reading when I have a minute today or tomorrow. Because so, and, and so many of the things you're saying, so with it, that's within the context of schizophrenia, which you're right. talking about now, but many people who have... Uh, who do not have any diagnosis of schizophrenia or any other mental illness would benefit in this empowering way from talking to Absolutely. someone about their fears, of being Absolutely. able to have the safety valve. And yeah. so it seems to me that the more we understand of these conditions, the more we can appreciate the fact that it, the, the proper way to look at it is this spectrum Continuum. approach. Yeah. It's it's makes it much more difficult scientifically, which is what I'd like to ask you about next, what's okay. really going on and 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 what's happening neurophysiologically right. and, and so forth. And it also presumably makes it more difficult to be able to be precise about aspects of treatment. I mean, it's, it's very, very easy to have a grand theory about something if you only have two possibilities, right? right. So right. It's, scientifically, it's no problem. You can come up right. with a grand theory with all sorts of predictive power. The problem is it'll most likely be wrong. Right. So, right. <laughs> and small, you, small little problem. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so the, when, when things become much more complex, you uh, can appreciate the complexity, but you're not sure what to do exactly right. with it. Right. Um, 
So getting to the neurophysiological aspect of it, is this something that you are personally interested in or you follow up on or what, what's the latest research in terms of, of what people believe is going on with schizophrenia broadly defined? You know, I don't really know the literature. I mean, obviously people think that schizophrenia is a, a brain disease and it has to do with our biochemistry and early theory had to do with dopamine. I don't know what people say today. Right. Um, it's sort of, I think we're at the early stages of understanding the biology of schizophrenia, but it's important to try to, try to understand. Right. Well, everything is arguably a, right. I mean, everything depends on the brain, right. no, matter, no matter who you are. Right. Um, let, me, let me move to uh, aspects of psychoanalysis and, and, and treatment. Um, so you've had some experiences. Is there anything that you can generalize based upon your experiences in terms of saying most people should be doing this or how it should be done or when you look at at different bodies and the way they treat um, the whole process of analysis. I'm not quite ready to get into the policy aspect of it, but at some at, at some level of commonality. Say, say the question again. Yeah, it wasn't a very good question. Uh, no, so I'll try one it. more time. Yeah. Uh, is, are there any generalities that, that you might be able to make in terms of how analysis should be? Uh, terrible question. I can't even formulate it myself. How can I expect you to answer it? Uh. Um, Let's forget about that one. Okay. Let's let's move somewhere completely different. Um, and let me ask you about misconceptions of mental health in the general populace. So again, right now what I'm trying to explore is just different aspects of how people perceive mental illness, how it's perceived from the inside, how it's perceived from the outside, from societal stereotypes or what have you. Well, what are some of the bigger there's, misconceptions? There are a lot of misconceptions, you know, uh, especially about schizophrenia. I mean, one is just confusing the nature of the illness, thinking it means multiple personality disorder, which right. is a completely different category of illness. But I think even more toxic are, are two beliefs, which is that people with this illness can't live independently and can't work and can't have relationships. And then even more important than that is the idea that people with the illness are really dangerous and have to be, you know, shunned and tossed to the side and kept away from the general public. And that's just not true. I mean, the percentage of violent crime caused by people with mental illness is like two or three percent. Um, and people with mental illness are much likelier to be victimized, to be killed and assaulted than people who don't have schizophrenia. Um, and there's, you know, huge misconceptions about that. And I think, you know, what do you, I mean, stigma, the worst thing about stigma is it deters people from getting care. And, you know, people shouldn't have to suffer, but they will if they don't get care. Um, and how do, you know, what do we do about stigma? Well, one is the media, right? So that when violence happens and if the person has an illness, you at least contextualize it and that you tell good stories, success stories. Um, I was invited to be on a, a big uh, TV magazine uh, show that was going to have a segment on schizophrenia. At the last minute, they said they couldn't interview me because I wasn't representative enough. And I thought, don't you want to show the range of adaptations? <laughs> you know, don't you want to show the success stories as well as the failures? Right. Um, so in a way, you're doing this show is, I think, helpful in terms of kind of trying to um, destigmatize uh, mental illness. Oh, we're going well beyond that. We're getting into the core ideas. I mean, yeah, exactly. Whether, whether or not, uh, I mean, it's it's an added perspective. The fact that you you have acknowledged that you suffer from a mental illness, but uh, I would want to talk to you independent of that. So because of, because yeah. of your yeah. your experience and your position. And, and to go back also to the question about brain imaging. Yeah. I mean, I I take the view that mental illness is a biochemical illness that requires medication and therapy for the person to do okay. 
but it's not because I've done the heavy philosophical lifting and distinguishing mental illness from eccentricity or difference and you know how it should be approached. I haven't done that philosophical heavy lifting and I take the view I take because of pragmatic reasons. It makes my life better. Right. If I have that, now another person might say, well, you know, you're calling me schizophrenic or you say I have schizophrenia. I think this is just an alternative way of being and I think it's equally legitimate and I'm happy. Great, all the more power to you. So it's kind of, I think a, a kind of personal thing as well as a kind of theoretical issue. Right, and then there's this whole idea of, of feeling on the other side, perhaps feeling handcuffed by the whole idea of a diagnosis. I mean, you right. write about this, that there was this diagnosis and that diagnosis, right. and then for whatever legal policy reasons, at some point there was a diagnosis that was needed, and then right. it came down in this very strong way, and this was like a, uh, the sense of a punishment or some fatalistic yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. sentencing for you. Yeah, I felt like it was a sentence to a bleak and painful life. Right. Yeah. Um, but, of course, even that, when you look at it objectively, uh -huh. is somewhat arbitrary and potentially fluid. I mean, you just mentioned this article with the eight different types of schizophrenia. Tomorrow right. they might say one thing, and, right. and, and so right. um, it's, it's difficult to say with absolute definity or absolute definiteness. Yeah. Especially because presumably when they're making these diagnoses, they're uh, making them behaviorally. It's not as if you can put right. someone in a scan and say, right. oh, yes, take you've their got... blood or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, a, a little bit about um, stigma and the neurophysiological aspects uh -huh. of this. Um, so I mentioned to you that I talked to Steve Hinshaw a while right. ago about right. ADHD, and his perspective was that the funny thing about stigma is that studies have shown that when people are, uh, when the, the average community around somebody who is suffering is of the view that people can't change their behavior because there's something neurophysiologically going on, they will, that is to say, a brain disease, for example, right. Right. they will be more sympathetic. They will say, oh, that's that poor individual, they suffer right. from this brain disease. But on the other hand, they will be increasingly intolerant right. and, pu right. and pull away much more with this social distance because they right. think, well, there's nothing I can do and this person right. will be, the, they won't change at all whatsoever, as opposed to them thinking, wow, they're just lazy or they're not trying right. or, right. or something right. like that. Right. And so there is this double-edged sword of looking at things neurophysiologically by That's feeling really that you're trapped. By, by That's this. a really good point. There's actually considerable evidence, as I understand, that the public coming, to just underscore what you're saying, that the public coming to see mental health disorders as brain disorders does not reduce stigma, but actually putting a human face on it does. So if people come out and talk about their stories or if they know, you know the person in the office next door is bipolar, but you know, he seems to want just what I want, and, you know, in the words of Freud, to love and to work, you know, that does reduce stigma. But I think you make a really, really good point about, about brain disease. And it, you know, it also happens in the, in the legal system where mental health, you know, cuts both ways, you know, on the one hand, it may make you, in criminal justice, may make you less responsible, but it may make you also more dangerous and right. actually can have a, a bad effect on, on the outcome in a criminal case because of that fear. Right. So let's move to the, to the legal side and let's okay. move to the policy side a little bit. And uh, let's talk about some of your work to start How are we with. on time? We're, we're at uh, 11.20. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Right. Okay, my, thanks. My so let's talk about um, aspects of the policy side of things. And you've done work, uh, quite a bit of work, with uh, informed consent and psychoanalysis and multiple yeah. personality disorders and right. so forth. So 
maybe you could just give me some kind of a top-down view of some of uh, the work that you've been involved in, and we'll move towards the the policies and and laws that are in place today around right. issues of, of mental health. Right, right. So my uh, scholarly career has been looking at issues uh, at the intersection of law, mental health, and ethics. Um, and early in my career, I studied what's now called associative identity disorder or multiple personality disorder and criminal responsibility. You know, if there's a multiple with a John personality and a Joe personality, and without John's knowledge, Joe commits a crime, should John have to suffer, that kind of thing. So it's kind of fun thinking about that. I actually, to educate myself, I um, watched about 100 hours of videotapes of people being interviewed on the Skid D. I also used to go to a local hospital that had an, an MPD ward. Actually, the first one, I would meet with people as a group and have a conversation and then give, do one or two individual interviews. Right. The first individual interview I did was with a young woman, about 25, seemed very committed to, to treatment. She didn't have a lot of, didn't seem like she just wanted to be taken care of, have secondary gain. She said, she just got married. I said, congratulations. She said, yes, the engagement was two years because my husband insisted on getting consent from all of the altars. <laughs> Jeez. That's a that's a tolerant fellow. And 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 how how many were there, by the way? How many? Probably like fifteen or something like that. Fifteen. Yeah. yeah. That's not uncommon. That's yeah. Then I got more into issues around capacity uh, in the civil system, capacity to consent to research and treatment. Um, and I designed an instrument to measure the appreciation component of capacity, and we ran it on 150 subjects. And so I did some empirical work on capacity and some sort of theoretical work on capacity. So tell me, tell me, what do you mean by capacity? What are, what are we talking so, about? So, you know, to make a medical decision, you have to give informed consent, and the consent must be informed, voluntary, and capable, capacity, competent. Um, so the question is, what is it to be competent to consent or refuse to either treatment or research? Right. Um, and scholars divide competency into evidencing a choice, understanding, appreciating, and reasoning. Um, and I developed an instrument that looked just at appreciation. Um, and I basically argued that if someone forms beliefs about the intervention um, and they're not patently false, they should be deemed competent. So the, the gold standard instrument is a MacArthur instrument and under appreciation they would find 25% incapable. On our study, on our instrument, it's more like 12 or 13%. So it's more auto autonomy protective, but I hope it's, you know, makes it sound kind of theoretically. Um, and uh, and I've done other things with with psychiatric research, like um, uh, psychosocial interventions research with controls and some of the ethical issues around that. Um, I recently, you know, I've started an institute with with some of my MacArthur money called the Sachs Institute of Mental Health Law Policy and Ethics, and we study a different issue each year. So the first year was restraints. The second year was psychotropic meds in the law. Third year, criminalization of mental illness. People ending up in jail and prison instead of hospitals, which is horrible. The next year, mental health disorders in college and university students, which we're continuing this year. But I forgot why I said that. What were we talking about? Well, I, I asked you to give a summary, uh, which is what you're doing. Oh, okay. Of, so of, of activities that you've had. So I've got this institute, and every year I have I affiliate about ten or twelve students from different disciplines: law, psychology, psychiatry, philosophy, neuroscience. Yeah. Um, and we meet as a group, and uh, they work on papers individually, and then they come to our distinguished lecture and our symposium. Um, but I, I try to get as many of my students' publications as I can. So I've got two journals that each take four. 
but the condition is that I write something as well. So every year I'm writing something about whatever the topic of the year is. So that's that's good for you. I guess it's a lot of work, but you get involved in all these different aspects. Right. And I don't, you know, it sort of involves me publishing in journals that I could probably get better placements, but it's worth it to me to get my students' publications. Right. I figure at this stage in my career, you know, it doesn't really matter that much anyway. <laughs> well, that's helpful. It's helpful yeah. to be at that stage. So I want to talk a, um, a, a little bit about different places and specific policies as well. Yeah. And because where I'd like to go, as I, as I said at the beginning, is moving towards a more prescriptive notion of what needs to be done. And, right. uh, but first we have to know what's out there and right. what the issues are and all the rest of that. In your memoir, you mention a, a practical difference in terms of, of restraints and confinement with the United Kingdom and the United States, that there was no such policy, as I understand it, in the United Kingdom in terms of forcibly re restraining people. Right. And then when you found yourself in the United States, you were subjected to all sorts of right. Horrible, degrading aspects of, right. of forcible confinement. Um, so we can talk about restraints, and we can talk about those uh, particularities. But what I what I'd really like to do is is abstract away and say, where are places that are more progressive? If you can make some sort of generalizations uh, with respect to some of these policies and laws and procedures, and and in what specifically? What are we? So talking? let me let me compare England and America. I was in the system both in England and America. I was hospitalized in both countries. I mean, some of this data is old. It's sort of more like you know the early '90s or late '80s. But at that time, comparing the U.S. and England, um, the United States committed about 50% of their patients, not including emergency commitments. England committed about 3%, including emergency commitments. Most wards in the United States were locked. Most wards in England were unlocked. Um, they, you know, full-blown mechanical restraints, restraining someone spread eagle to a bed, hasn't happened there in over 200 years. It's fairly common here, depending on the place. Still. Still. Um, and then, so that's, they, they use force a lot less than we do. The other side is they also, in a way, provide more than we do. So when I left Oxford in the early 80s, a town of 125,000, there were 43 group homes for people who had been hospitalized with mental illness. Moved to New Haven, Connecticut, same 125,000, one halfway house. Of course, the institutionalization is going to fail if we don't have resources in place to help people. Sure. And then the other thing that was quite striking to me, when my book came out, I had a British edition as well, and I went out to do some... Uh, touring around and I met with my old psychiatrist from 30 years ago. It was very odd. He looked exactly the same to me. <laughs> it was really funny. But he confirmed that it was still the case they don't use full-blown mechanical restraints and they don't commit that many people. He said, and I'm in this office building right next to Westminster Hospital London and I see half of my patients in the hospital and the other half I go to their homes and I give them therapy and medication. Wow. And I thought sparing people the risks and costs of hospitalization, that's what a great idea. And Why the emotional don't we do trauma that? as the well. The trauma. Yeah. Why don't we do that? Or money, presumably, and, yeah. or something. At the far end of failure, we do have people go to people's houses. But but people who are just coming into the system, keep them out of the hospital. Yeah. You know, so and so I think it's a much more benign uh, and supportive system there than we have here. And you mentioned they haven't been using restraints and they have, uh, well, the, these other provisions and support and so forth. But that presumably didn't just happen spontaneously. I mean, they did use restraints back in the right. 17th century or the 18th century or right. whenever. 
Um, so somewhere along the line, something must yeah, have yeah. happened to force. Yeah, them. no, it was you know, Pinnell loosed the chains, and John Connolly started quote moral treatment in the UK, which was treating people with dignity and respect, and expecting them to do well, and taking them out of the shackles, and it worked. So they kept doing it, and somehow know? it never quite made it across the Atlantic. Exactly. There are places, my first year in my institute was on mechanical restraints, places like the, um, Massachusetts and Pennsylvania, where they've undertaken restraint reduction efforts that have been very successful. You know, they greatly reduce the use of restraints and they don't have uh, more injury and they don't have more costs and it's doable. Given the fact that a lot of people die in restraints, there's a Hartford Current study about restraint deaths and a Harvard statistician took the data and estimated that every year, one every week, one to three people die in restraints. They vomit, they aspirate their vomit, they strangle, they have a heart attack. Given that you can protect people from harm by like staff specialing someone, are we saving lives or costing lives by using restraints? And forget about the, the loss of life, but the loss of dignity and the pain. I mean, I, I had years of nightmares after the restraints. Sure. You know, if we can, can do without them or, or with less of them, then I think we have an obligation to try. And moving forwards from, from that as well, there's the issue, there's the distinction between what the law mandates or what the law requires right. and the people on the ground who are implementing things, right. sensitivity, training. It's not enough just to change the law. You have to, you have to also work with members of... Oh, I have a good example of that. Yeah. So, you know, Connecticut has a law that you can't restrain someone unless they're imminently dangerous to self or others. And we had a client at Connecticut Valley Hospital and we went to read his records, his chart. And it said basically every day, so-and-so refused to get out of bed, so we restrained him. <laughs> like that's imminent danger. <laughs> and they write it in the chart. There's a law and they write in the chart that they're breaking the law. Either they don't know or they don't care. It's just, you're right. It has to be people's attitudes. It has to be their commitment, their dedication to trying to treat patients not only therapeutically, but with dignity and respect. So what has to be done is, uh, I think, in tandem, policy modifications, legal modifications, and also awareness of, right. in fact, why we're doing this. Uh, right. That's why a very we're good point. Have you had a chance to study, you mentioned the UK in personal experience, but from a legal perspective, uh, have, there, have you or some of your colleagues been able to do large studies with lots of other countries in the world and point to a place and say, you know, in Sweden, these guys have the gold standard or in... New Zealand or... or no, it's or extremely important research, but I haven't done it. It's not something that I've looked at. Yeah. You know, there are international you know, um, documents talking about humane and dignified treatment and, and those kinds of things, but I'm not, it's not something that I know. And does it vary a fair amount uh, within the United States from state to state? You mentioned, I think it was Massachusetts just now. Uh, in and Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania. You know, I, there's some variation. Uh, I mean, as an example, when I was in Connecticut, the emergency commitment was for 15 days, and then you had a right to a hearing. In California, it's three days, and then you have a right to a hearing. So there are some variations like that, but most places have the same standard for commitment, dangerous to self or others, or grave disability. Um, there's some variation, and some states actively use what, what we call assisted outpatient therapy or outpatient commitment, where they require people in the community to take medication. Um, so a lot of jurisdictions have that law, but only a few actually use it, but it's becoming more and more common. And, and in terms of treatment, uh, maybe this is more of a policy issue than a legal issue. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't pretend to be an expert, but I want to get to the this notion of psychoanalysis and and, and therapy um, because again, I have no expertise, but uh, 
my sense is this is something that really helped you and probably right. really helps a great many other people. Right. And there are probably a lot of people out there who had the perspective that I had at the beginning, which is right. that this is some outmoded, quaint... Right. Uh, right. Nobody uses it nobody anymore. Nobody uses it anymore. It's not scientific. Right. Uh, enough of all this stuff. We should, right. we should really do things rig scientifically rigorously. Right. Um, but that that's, certainly doesn't seem to be the case. So, um, so how should we go forwards in terms of incorporating uh, psychoanalysis and therapy uh, with with other aspects of, of treatment or policies? Do you have any? It's any a good sense question. I mean, I mean, the only thing I can really think of is to actually do the studies and show that it works, and do the studies that show who it works for. Yeah. I mean, is the way is the way to go. I mean, it's. Again, it's expensive, it's time intensive, but it can really make all the difference. And if you keep someone, at, you know, I haven't been hospitalized since 82, 83. Keep someone out of the hospital all those years is probably a great savings rather than a cost. Right. And this brings up this whole idea. The standard policy of prophylactic medical care yeah. indicates that if you spend money in the front end, you right. save a lot more money in the, in the back. Forget about the moral aspect, which is, of right. course, preeminent. But, but forget about that for the time being, right. just on the strict economic uh, right. basis. It's important to actually uh, spend money now, and you'll save money later. Right. Um, is that something again, somewhat outside of the legal field, more into the policy field of actually implementing some of these ideas conceptually? But um, but is that something which is gaining ground? Do you think, or not so much here? You mean to in the United States, this idea that you have to spend some money so that we should? Yeah, it's hard to say. Yeah. It's hard to say. I mean, I will say, you know, my institute has led to changes which I think are really helpful. Like, as an example, we did restraints, and the Kennedy Department of Mental Health started collecting data on restraints to figure out if there are outliers and change. And even more important than that, I think, um, our talk on criminalization of mental illness, our symposium on that, had a judge from Florida named Steve Leifman talk about a jail diversion system that he's put together. And actually, the, the head of the Kennedy Department of Mental Health said, I like that idea. We're going to do that here. What is, what is that? What is a jail diversion system? Well, instead, you know, you, someone has a, with a mental health disorder comes to the attention of the criminal justice system, and instead of sending them to court and giving them, you know, even just probation or whatever, you send them to the separate route, some kind of treatment court, um, and they don't get a criminal record, and they are, but they are given access to and required to do treatment. Um, so they do that in Miami with great success, and I think they're going to try to do that here, and I feel great about that. Right. I mean, jail is not a place for a person with mental health disorder. Right. I think there are wider issues of prison reform in terms of what is one trying to accomplish exactly. anyway in jail. Exactly. But, but certainly in this case, it, it seems exactly. it's completely deleterious. I wanted to ask you about how the law has, has changed and, and, uh, and evolved through the influence of yourself and other people who, who, who have been doing so. But before I do, let me, let me get back to exploring some details that I think I may have glossed over a little bit, specifically okay. with respect to restraints. Because okay. I think... I think it's important for people to get a clear sense of what the law is, what right. you were trying to, uh, what your efforts were, right. how things have changed in different places, and right. so forth. Um, so, so, to me, let me just set it up by just saying my own points and then tell me if I'm completely off base or what the key issues are. To me, a key issue that I'd certainly like to return to is this idea of autonomy, this idea of capacity, this idea right. of when someone is in a position to be able to make a judgment themselves as opposed right. to having a judgment made for them. Right. So, um, so can you maybe uh, very specifically talk about restraints, the work that you did, uh, what the law was uh, previously to, to having it changed at least in some different areas and compare right. and contrast it with different places? So, you know, restraints... 
Four and six point restraints tying someone's spirit eagle to a bed has been around for a long time. Um, in England, it sort of went away around uh, the end of the 19th century with people like John Connolly and moral treatment. Treat people with dignity and respect and they'll act in a dignified and respectful way. And that seems to be the case. Um, and it is actually against the law to do that now? Or is it just policy that people do it? Is there anything that's written down? Policy that people... Well, sorry, policy that people uh, treat people with dignity and, and, and respect insofar as they don't physically restrain them in the United Kingdom. But if they were to physically restrain them, would it be against the law? Is there, are there I don't think it would be against the law. No, okay. I just think the practice is not to I do see. it. Yeah. I, I am not aware of any law okay. in England about that. Okay. Um, in America, you know, we, places vary between using restraints a lot. When I was in the hospital, I read my records after the fact, and it said use restraints liberally. So they thought of it as a form of treatment that they would do a lot, and that that would help me. And I didn't experience it that way at all. Sure. Um, so, and there have been efforts to reduce the use of restraints um, and that have been highly successful, like in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania, but other places they're still used quite a bit. What's the robust finding in the literature is that whether you get restrained has less to do with your characteristics as a patient, the staff-patient ratio, or anything else like that. What it has to do with is the ethos that comes from the top. So if management, if the head people say, use restraints liberally, they will be, if they say, do everything you can to de-escalate situations so you don't have to use restraints, and that's what will happen as well. So that's been a finding. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, restraints are are potentially dangerous. I've I've said, um, yeah. you know, p- people die in restraints, yeah. um, and so that's another reason that we shouldn't use them. And also, for trauma victims, particularly sexual abuse, tying you spread eagle to a bed is totally re-traumatizing. I mean, I've been fortunate never to have experienced anything like that, but I can only imagine what it feels like if you have that kind of history. Sure, sure. it's traumatizing enough, obviously, exactly. if, you, if, you, if you haven't. But uh, getting back to this idea of policy and the law right. and, and, and this gray area, perhaps, between the two of them. So it comes from the top, but then, of course, the question is, well, how does that happen? I mean, obviously, right. someone's in charge and all the rest right. of that. But that person who's in charge of the institution, um, administrator or, or, or head psychiatrist right. or, or whatever, um, that individual went through various training programs. Right. That individual was subjected to a culture right. outside of that. Right. Um, so where do they get their Where do they get it? orientation? And how, and how can we change it? And how can we get them exposed to uh, people like yourself and other yeah. other people in different places that say, this is... This is not only immoral, but it, it is it is counter-therapeutic. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It doesn't even it doesn't achieve it, anything. There's not much of a gray area, it seems to me. Right, right. Um, right. So how do we how do we do that? You know, I, I'm guessing that those people who have gone through the ranks. I mean, it's hard to say with chicken and egg what came first or yeah. whatever. How they got the view, but they have the view and they express it, and and that's how it manifests. How do we change the view? You know, we write about it, we talk about it. You know, we do studies. We Look at how often they're not used and things happen well. Right. Sort of education and training, um, really, um, I think is the best is the best you can do. Um, and isn't this? It seems to me this is a form of dehumanizing in advance. I mean, if if obviously it's dehumanizing to submit someone to to a degrading and, and, and horrible act, but if you are of the view that well, those people need to be that way, they right. need to be submitted to that, then you are from the very beginning dehumanizing. They're not. You're taking well, distance right from the right from the get go. When I wrote my student note on restraints, it was a student law review article on restraints. There was a theory in the literature that restraints were treatment. They made people feel safe. 
I've never talked to a psychiatric patient or read anything from a psychiatric patient that suggests that restraints feel safe. They feel toxic. They feel demoralizing. They feel demeaning. They're dangerous. Did I tell you the story about my professor and the article I was writing? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, you can just... Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Tell me. Tell me again. So I was writing my student note on mechanical restraints, and I met with a psychiatrist who was on the faculty at the law school and said, you know, I'm writing on this topic, and restraints must be very degrading and painful. And he said, well, Ellen, you don't understand. These people are psychotic. They're different from you and me. They don't experience restraints the way we would, which is an exact example of othering the person and doing something to them that you wouldn't dream of doing to someone like yourself or your spouse. Right. And, and not just othering, but you're establishing a hierarchy. It's not just yes, that they're different, but you're, different, you're, but you're lower. Right. Yeah. They're better. Yeah. They're superior and the patient is, you know, on the bottom. Right. So have you, because you have... Let to, me just say one other thing. Please, so please. I did my note on mechanical restraints when I was at the law school and, mm-hmm. and published it. And I got a call my third year at law school from the Bazelon Center for Mental Health Law. At the time, it was called the Mental Health Law Project. And they said, you know, we read your note on restraints and we're bringing this mass, massive class action lawsuit against the use of restraints in some Midwestern town, which ended up settling in very good terms, favorable to kind of our side. But that made me feel great. I mean, something I wrote actually had an effect. Right. I felt good about and that. And has there been more of that sort of thing? Is this is this Not growing? that I know of. Not that I know of. I mean, there, the trend is to think of restraints as treatment failure rather than treatment. So I think a lot of people accept that, but a lot of people still think it's necessary sometimes. I mean... I think we should send those people to England and train them there, and right. then they'll see what what can what's possible and feasible. And also send you to those people. I mean, I, I'm I'm sure right. that that in your public speaking engagements uh, and in your public uh, profile, you are to some extent changing hearts and minds in the community that who might not have people who might not have thought about this very much at all. Is that possible? Is that I happening? I hope I hope I'm not sure. I I hope it's happening. Is the idea of mental health law mm-hmm. this this crossover, this combination that, that uh, you have done so much to advance, is that as a field, as a discipline, is that growing? Is that something that I would say not. Of? I would say not. I would say that, you know, so maybe there are 250 law schools in the country and maybe 100 of them offer a class in mental health law or 50 of them. I'm, I'm just guessing. It's not a mainline subject. I mean, to me, it's an important subject, obviously. Um, but I don't think it's getting, I mean, there was a time back in the like early 70s when it was really hot, you know, lots of lawsuits on right to refuse medication and civil commitment and, you know, those kinds of things. And it's just not, not on people's radar anymore or not on kids' radar. There, a lot of them are focused on getting, you know, their corporate jobs and that kind of thing. Sure, but people were always focused on getting oh, their corporate were. jobs. Right. But I mean, that's very disappointing that, that we, we've actually peaked uh, or at least well, maybe it's maximum. a valley and it'll go right, up again, right, right. I hope. Sure. I hope. So I, I mentioned this to you um, in, in, our, in some email correspondence, but um, I feel very passionately that um, this idea of treatment of the less unfortunate, which uh-huh. often includes the mentally ill, uh-huh. um, is a really significant moral issue of our times that for the most part is just being completely ignored. I mean, in any big city in the world, right. you will walk by people who are sleeping on sewer gratings. You right. will, you will, there's this objectification of humans right. that we're all used to. And I don't claim a higher moral standard. It's not like right. I'm out working in a soup kitchen or something, right. but this is something that I think well, is... We've, we've hardened our hearts. It's, it's, yeah. it's horrific. And, and yeah. it's something that I'm convinced in a few hundred years 
we're going to look back and say, how could people have done this? Right. Just, just I like completely we agree with with uh, minorities and women and exactly and, and slavery yeah. and not giving women the right to vote and and, and or abuse of you know the, the, it's it's these are things that are inconceivable to us now, but were part of the daily life a couple hundred years ago. And similarly, I, I think this is something which we're used to, but will hopefully I, I agree be inconceivable. Patrick Kennedy, son of Ted, is bipolar, and he came and spoke at our event last year. And he basically said mental health law is the new civil rights agenda. Right. That people with mental health is basically the same point you're making. Um, and I think it's really true. And I think it, we're going to look back and we're going to be horrified. Um, and is there a way to get there sooner so that we don't have all these years of maltreatment and dismissal and all those kinds of things? Right. So there's that. And then there's where do we go? So this is another right. thing that I wanted to ask you about. because. There are these obviously very complex moral issues. If I look at somebody who is wandering around the streets and right. maybe they're, they're suffering from schizophrenia, right. maybe they haven't taken their medication, maybe right. they've been diagnosed and they haven't taken their medication, there's the obvious conundrum right. of what to do with this person because necessarily forcing them to take their medication does not strike me as, as, as the best practice, but completely ignoring them and turning your back also does not strike me as the best practice. I don't pretend to know very much about this other than that it seems like what everybody's doing is just ignoring them. And right. I would like a certain sense as to what we should be doing, how we should be moving forwards in some way. Well, I mean, I think there are really basically only two possibilities. One, we provide better resources and better treatment, or two, we force people to get care. Um, I believe that we have not stepped up to the plate to provide resources to people, and they're going to obviously fail if they don't get resources. And, you know, mine's not the story of a lone woman who overcame odds through force of will, force of will, but someone into whom enormous treatment resources were invested. And I think we need to do that with other people. Um, another possibility is to use force, um, compel them to get medication, compel them into a hospital or whatever. I think there are occasions when that's appropriate. If someone lacks capacity, if, if I were to say to you, you know, I really like this medication, it's helped me enormously, but if I take it, it's going to cause a nuclear explosion. I don't have the capacity to refuse that treatment, and someone, a benign other person, should determine that I need it and give it to me. Sure. So there are occasions where compulsion makes sense and force makes sense. But a lot of occasions where it doesn't, you use force as an unstable solution. Once you stop administering it, nobody has, the person has no incentive not to go back. Right. And what I think we ought to do, I mean, if I were going to write the agenda of how we should be thinking about these issues, there would be two, three issues. Um, more treatment, less use of force, design studies to help find out how we can get people to want treatment so we don't need to use force. So I like a right to refuse treatment, not because I think refusing treatment is a good idea, but because I think autonomous people should be able to make their own decisions. But I think we should figure out ways to get people to want treatment. So do and you I'm, have any specific suggestions about that before? Well, we you know, I'm actually talking to some folks at UCLA and UCLA about designing a study about people who, quote, tip. You know, so there'd be three groups. People who've been off wouldn't take medication for a decade and won't ever take it. You know, people who take it right away and then people who go for some time not taking it like me and then, quote, tip and start taking it. And what leads them to tip so we can get find out and maybe get other people to, quote, tip sooner. So that's, that's a thought. It's a very early stage. I think that's what we should do. Um, and then the third thing is, again, mechanical restraints, that we should have a very uh, detailed and severe law about when you can and can't use restraints. To me, those are the three big ticket items. I mean, that, that's not fair to say. Another big ticket item is, you know, homeless people with mental illness, veterans with mental illness, children with mental illness. 
I mean, they're all sort of stigma as a, as a subject, sure. you know. But these things are all interrelated, Bets, of course. Yeah, yeah. There are a lot, of, a lot of really important issues. Yeah. But so there's a sense of awareness. But as I was saying, um, what I would like to do is, is to get a sense of, and I keep harping on this, but... Where to go next. Yeah, How concrete to... policy, concrete laws. So one concrete thing is we should aim towards a scenario where we do away with restraints right. entirely. Right. And... and and that will that discussion right. and, and and consequent awareness will also hopefully lead people to recognize that autonomy is an important aspect. Right. This not you know other superiority hierarchy right. business and and, right. and all the rest of that. Not only with medical professionals, but also with um, with people, just everyday people, and, right. and and awareness of this. What about also this idea of earlier diagnosis and an earlier awareness of what some of these conditions can be because the more people know about this, the more they can be receptive to some of the signs of, uh, exactly. of people. So how, exactly. how should we go about doing that? Well, that's a really important point. If we catch, capture illness early, you know, we have better outcome. There's, a lot, there's an idea of, quote, length of untreated psychosis correlating with brain damage. So getting, oh, people, really? yeah, getting people earlier is better. It sort of raises interesting issues. So, you know, about 16 or 7, most boys with schizophrenia break in their late teens and girls in their early 20s, but there are sometimes sort of prodromal periods where they start withdrawing from their friends and holding up in their bedroom and, you know, uh, maybe have some, you know, uh, uh, eccentric ideas or whatever. Um, and they look like they have something called attenuated psychotic syndrome, which is in the research part of the DSM, or at least it used to be. Um, and uh, then the question arises, you know, these are pre-psychotic kids. Some of them are going to convert to psychosis about, I think the number is about a third and the rest aren't. So here's the dilemma. Do we give people medication that's going to help those who would have converted have a more mild episode or none at all, but the cost is we're giving medication to a group of other kids who never would have converted it. So they are suffering the risks and side effects of the medication. Do we have studies on that to be able to see? We don't know. We, well, yeah, I mean, there are discussions of that, of that issue. Um, I don't think we know how to distinguish between the groups that are going to convert and the groups. I mean, it would be easy if we did. It would be sure. an easy question. We just give the ones who are going to convert the meds. No, no, no. But what I mean is, do we have studies that show uh, whether or not uh, there can be an empirically uh, significant difference if you have a, a, a one group that mm -hmm. were pre, I can't remember, pre-psychotic. Pre -psychotic, okay, yeah. so you had a pre-psychotic categorization. And, and they were given medication, holus bolus, and another that was not given medication, uh, and then was, was able to... Then we'd be I, able I to don't really it. know. I don't, there probably are studies, but I don't really know for and sure. And is there a sense that if, if one were to give this pre-psychotic medication to people who, at the end of the day, would not develop full-blown schizophrenia, uh, that that would be uh, deleterious to them, that that, that would be disabetic? Maybe, maybe it wouldn't have such a big negative well, difference to them. I don't yeah, know. it's not. I mean, there are a lot of side effects and risks. So, yeah. but it's nothing, it's not like, you know, 50% die or something like that. Sure. And I assume over time it's observed that the person's doing fine and you take them off the medication. So I don't know how big of a cost it is to medicate people who won't turn out to be ill. But it's an ethical conundrum and it's a conundrum for clinicians and for parents as well. Right. And this idea of informed consent with psychoanalysis. So, so um, when... If ever, these are some of the issues as I see it, but maybe I'm missing them or misinterpreting them. When, if ever, 
should the state somehow be involved in the in the doctor patient relationship between right. the uh, well the doctor and the patient right <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to those other doctor patients <laughs> and a basketball player and uh, anyway um, and, and again this idea of uh, making people making keeping society safe uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. Uh, 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 taking sufficient care of the of the particular patient because it does seem very very different um, if I am going to uh, a psychoanalyst and I am raving about something or other where maybe I'm doing something maybe I will do something terrible to society or maybe it's just a steam valve or an outlet right. uh, or maybe there should be issues to ensure that I am protected myself right. from things and other people should be aware of it right. as opposed to if I have a problem with my knee and I go to right. uh, go, go to a doctor so what what can we say about those issues and what how we well, might be I mean, getting I th- better? It's sort of an interesting question. What you do if someone seems to be dangerous? I mean, first you do an assessment: is this a real danger or is this just someone blowing off steam? And sometimes you can distinguish, and sometimes you can't. There's a law in many jurisdictions based on the Tarasoff case, which says that the therapist has a duty to warn potential victims or take protective action if someone seems to be violent towards someone identifiable. Um, there are, there are issues around that, um, and they allow you to breach confidentiality. I find it staggering that you hear stories, and I get calls from therapists. My patient said something dangerous in session today, and I was a little bit nervous, so I called the police. And the police come, arrest the patient, accuse him, charge him of, quote, terrorist threats, and throw him into jail for something he said in therapy, which I just think you're looking very... And this happened? This happens? This happens, this? yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, at least they phone you. At least, at least you find. Yeah, out. I guess. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I've heard of it more than once. It's just, I think, horrible. And you know, it's so counterproductive because, again, the steam valve thing. If you can talk about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. If you're worried about being thrown in, in prison for what right. you say, then you're right. not going to open your mouth. Exactly. Exactly. And so I'm, I'm trying to think who are the, who are the other advocates? People like yourself. Uh, maybe people who have had similar experiences or maybe people right. who haven't. I mean, I don't think you need to necessarily have no, suffered from, from one of these uh, illnesses to, to right. be a spokesperson for more humane treatment, more reasonable right. treatment, look right. at things from the other person's right. perspective. Um, are there organized lobby groups? Are there organized... Uh, well, there are mental health law firms that do good work. The Bazelon Center for Mental Health Law is like the premier place. It's in Washington, D.C. I'm, I'm on their board. There's mental health advocacy services here in L.A. I'm on their board. There's an organization in Massachusetts called like Public Administration that does these kinds of issues. And for a while, there were um, there was something called protection and advocacy offices around the country, federally funded, that look at specific things. I think they have a different name now, but I don't really know what it is. Um, so, you know, advocates are consumers themselves, their family members, um, you know, lawyers who work in that area, people in public policy, just concerned citizens. Um, I mean, I think there's less of a lobby than would be optimal because, you know, people don't think of mental, mentally ill patients as a big voting block or whatever. So mm. there's less incentive to try to give them stuff that will make them feel happy. And Yeah. And what about you personally? If you're walking along the street, because you know I'm uh, maybe I'm just overly 
focused on this these days, but it, I, I just keep coming back to this idea that I feel like I'm living in this Dickensian dystopian yeah. nightmare sometimes when I'm walking along and, and anywhere, right? I mean, right? Whether I'm in the United States, whether I'm in Canada, or whether right. I'm in France, or whether I'm in England, right. or it's not, it's not like there are lots of places right. where I don't see this. And I'll see someone who's muttering to himself and then he's probably on the phone I'm just well, <laughs> <laughs> that's so true <laughs> uh, and, and one wonders but anyway there, there is some percentage of people who who are not on the phone who are right. who are doing this um, and I think to myself what should I do I, go, right. I don't know what to do and, and of course I'm just like everyone either. else I walk by and I just right. go hope they don't get into my world but I'm thinking that can't be right. I mean, there right. must be something that I should be doing or, or some, what, what, sh, what should we as a society, not necessarily as individuals, what should we be doing somehow? We should have the will, the political will to get the resources to help people who need help. And so if we give them the resources, again, that there are these people who are outside, let's suppose we give a, a huge amount of money, a de facto mm. infinite amount of money. Um, what should the resources be going to, and then how should we be dealing with these particular individuals or, well, or, or others? I mean, right. I think there used to be a theory that you gave people housing when they got straightened out, stopped using drugs, were taking their psychiatric medication, and you know, working part time. The theory now is housing first, get people into a safe and comfortable place, and then work on the other issues. And that seems to be getting some traction and seems to be doing some good. Um, you know. But, you know, again, there are like two things, invest resources or force people, you right. know, and I think the best way to go is to invest resources. But the resources would then, if you have those resources, you'd be cajoling people, you'd be talking to people, yeah, you'd be going yeah. on the street and, and yeah, interacting yeah. with them more often. Yeah, I actually, it was a kind of a funny story. So I know my students by their first names. And this student named Petra was in my second mental health law class. And she said, you know, can I do a documentary about mental health? I thought, well, that's ambitious, but she'll probably use a handheld video camera and interview a few people. So a month later, I get a call. Professor Sachs, I got a great cameraman, and I'm negotiating with the director right now. <laughs> I think to myself, this must be someone who has industry connections. Right. Six months later, I find out she's Marlon Brando's daughter. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Cool. And she wrote a, she did a documentary called Cursing at the Sun, which was a phrase that one of her subjects used. Uh, you know, he wakes up in the morning under the bridge and curses the sun. Uh, and it was a 70-minute video. It was shown on PBS. It was really incredibly good. But part of it was um, following this guy, Gerald, uh, who was a former psych patient, former alcoholic, who did outreach for LAMP, Los Angeles Men's Project, has men and women, on Skid Row. And they would talk to people, and they would befriend them, and they would bring them food, but they didn't force them to get care. And eventually, a lot of the people would come in and they'd sleep at night in, in, the, in the facility instead of on the streets. And some of them got disability benefits and turned around. But I think aggressive outreach you know, is the thing that we should do. And, and part of this, I understand, is that um, a, lot of, a lot of these people are quite justifiably, quite rightly, not going to these shelters because they will themselves be victims of, of violence, danger. victims of abuse yeah. and, and danger. And that's also something that I think most people don't know. They're like, yeah. well, there are these shelters out there. Why don't they go right. to these shelters? Right. Um, and as you were saying earlier, and as other people uh, have mentioned to me, people uh, who suffer from mental illness are far more likely to be the victims of exactly. violence than actually perpetrate violence themselves. Exactly. And so this is one documentary. But again, I'm thinking, that's great. Yeah. But how can how we scale, we, yeah. and how can we reiterate, yeah. and how can we make sure that it's not just, okay, one documentary, that's great, that's over here, and right. the mental health section of the documentaries, right. which contains maybe one or two, right. <laughs> two right. documentaries, and how can we get that out there? Yeah. Might there be a way to tie this 
with with other social issues because as I was talking about the homeless, right. of course there is a large percentage of people who are homeless or at least significant. I'm guessing. I don't know. Yeah, but I think that's right. Who, I don't know the exact number. But, but it's certainly high. not a totality of people. There right. are lots of people who don't suffer from from any of these uh, right. conditions. And so maybe some other social advocacy groups or something. It's an interesting idea. So join forces have yeah, more of a presence, more of a force. You'd, yeah, you'd yeah. think. And what about other? Conditions because you mentioned multiple personality disorder. Mm -hmm. um, Bipolar is a big one that gets people in trouble. They get manic and they get impulsive. And, right. You know. And is there a, is there a crossover between these diseases to the extent that we talked earlier about diagnoses? That some people have a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And and well, there's actually a diagnosis called schizoaffective, which is a combination of bipolar and schizophrenia. Um, it's actually better prognosis than schizophrenia. Yeah, no, I think I think we talked earlier that it's kind of on a continuum, and some people think even bipolar and schizophrenia are on a on a continuum. Bipolar being less serious and schizophrenia more serious, mm -hmm. but that's all being thought about and fought about and, and that kind of thing. Are there centers? I wanted to get back to this idea of places where they focus on mental health law, and you said that there aren't all that many. Right. Um, you you do this here at, at USC. Um, well, I don't do advocacy. I do kind of right. education. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, are there other people here who who do advocacy? Are there other? Is there more of that uh, at, at USC? And are there other places where, in the country or in other parts of the world, where they where they do? You know, I don't know how many advocacy. how many like cl clinical education in law schools involves practicing lawyers as clinical professors supervising students doing real cases. When I was at Yale, they had a mental health law project, which my close friend Steve and I did, and a child advocacy project, which, which we did. USC has five or six or even seven clinics, but no mental health clinic. As far as I know, you know, in LA, the only organization that does this is mental health advocacy services, which a lot of kids, a lot of students um, intern at or do externships or summer jobs or whatever. So they, right. they get the experience of doing that. Right. But there's just not that much around. Huh. And I mean, it's very, it's very hard to raise enough money to do it, right? You have to get government grants and you have private donations. And it's, I know it's kind of a struggle to, for places to, to actually make ends meet sometimes. And when you mentioned, you mentioned Patrick Kennedy uh, right. a while ago, are there other people who are interested in, in raising the profile of... of well, sure, Glenn things? Close. Glenn Close, um, her sister, Jessie, who's going to be coming in on October 1st, uh, has bipolar, and her nephew, Jessie's son, has schizoaffective disorder. And she started an organization called Bring Change to Mind, and their big focus is on reducing stigma, and she's done benefits and that kind of thing. Eric Pantaleano, is that his name, from The Sopranos? I, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, an actor on the TV show called The Sopranos has depression in himself, and he formed an organization called No Kidding Me Too. Oh, you have depression? I do too, kind of thing. And... Uh, his idea is to like bring mental health education to schools so kids are um, instructed or taught what the symptoms of mental illness are. So if they start exhibiting them or see them in their friends, it won't be so foreign and scary and they'll have a sense of what can and can't be done. And I think that's a great idea as well. Right. And we do special, we do, you know, driver's ed and, and health ed, you know, we should do mental health as well. I'm trying to think who else. Well, obviously, Rosalind Carter has the Carter Institute, which focuses on mental health. So that's a big, big foundation that works in that area. Right. But it still seems somewhat depressing to me what you were saying, that um, that the attention writ large is not quite as large as it 
as it used to be, or maybe that's not so much yeah. an advocacy, but... Uh, no, I think that's true. I think there was a huge amount of excitement back in the 70s about, you know, making it harder to hospitalize people and that kind of thing, and looking at human rights. I mean, the, the famous civil commitment case is called O'Connor versus Donaldson. Basically says, you know, the Supreme Court case, you can't hospitalize someone for mental illness without more, unless they have a mental illness and as a result are dangerous to themselves or others or, or, or gravely disabled, unable to... You know, meet essential needs of food, clothing, and shelter, and everybody's like, "This is a great idea." Um, and then it turned out that you know we didn't have clinics, and people started failing and ending up in jails and prisons instead of hospitals, and it kind of backfired a little bit. Yeah, but that's because we didn't give resources, you know, to helping people. It seems like listening to you and from from your story, um, from your memoir. Um, there are also two aspects of stigma. We've touched on both of them, there, but. There's the, the aspect that we're all familiar with. You, someone is stigmatized because they're considered the other. They're dangerous. Right. They're, they're crazy. We don't want anything to do with them. Right. Um, and, and getting past uh, that particular barrier. But there's also the stigma of medication that we touched right. on briefly, that if right. you are somebody who is suffering or might be suffering from mental illness, right. the importance of being able to not only take your medication, because as you say, there are side effects, it's a non-trivial issue, but also accepting the fact that you, you do actually need medication right. is, is really something um, which is significant and important. And even, as you say, for people who need medication outside of mental illness with your, right. your laboratory, throwing these guys away. are throwing, right. <laughs> throwing away their things. So are there efforts made to highlight that? Your book highlights that very, very concretely. You uh. keep saying, you know, I made the mistake here, I made the mistake, I still right. wasn't ready, I still didn't accept right. this, I still... Right. And when, when we were talking just a while ago, uh, and you were talking about the benefits of psychoanalysis, you specified, yes, it was extremely beneficial for me, but I still should have been on medication at right. the same time. So is this, is this being advocated uh, as well, this idea that, that it's okay to accept the fact that you need medication, this is an yeah, illness, for sure, for sure. And, and can we be doing more towards people who are suffering for sure, from this? For sure. I mean, one of the things, you know, try, trying to get people to take their meds is like the biggest nut to crack in the field. And I get a lot of emails from, you know, how do I tell my spouse, my mother, my sister, my brother, you know, how do I get them to take meds? And, you know, my, hus my husband says I shouldn't be flipped, but what I say is if I knew that, I'd be the second schizophrenic with a Nobel. I mean, it's a huge issue. Um, I think, Nash, I guess, was yeah, the other exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, there are things. You, you, there's a book by Javier Anamador called "I'm Not Sick, I Don't Need Help," where he educates families to try to help their loved ones take medication. For me, you know, one of the things is, you know, people will say, "Well, I don't need it. I, I'm not ill," because they're in, in denial. Um, you might say to someone like that, "Well, look, you know." Um, you know, this med is used not only for people who have this disease, but for people who are having a hard time sleeping and feeling a little bit agitated. And you're complaining a lot about sleep and agitation. Why don't you give it a try? So I think actually forcing people to suffer what for them is a humiliation of admitting that they're sick is not necessary. You can try to get people to take meds by more kind of roundabout routes. And that works quite a bit. And I actually knew one psychiatrist who said that um, as a psychiatrist, he never had a patient who he couldn't eventually persuade to take medication. And good psychiatrists don't need to use force. I, I don't have enough data to know whether that's true, but that was this guy's, yeah. this guy's sense. It's and actually, there's a lot of, when, when it first, there first started to be a right to refuse medication in hospitals, there was a prediction that everybody would refuse and the hospitals would turn into snake pits. 
And in fact, there are very, very, very few long-term refusers. There are people who intermittently refuse. They get pissed off at their doctor. They don't like a side effect, but very, very few persistent refusers. And that's, that drives very well with your own personal story because you exactly. talk about all these periods when you refused and, and you didn't want to, and, and, but eventually you would come back to, to well, and, you know, my doctor really encouraged me to stay on meds, and it was a really great thing for him to do because, you know, my life is so much better now that I'm compliant on meds. It just, but it's it what really convinced me that I had an illness because I always had the fantasy that everybody had the same thoughts and feelings and chaos and violence than I did. And then I got on the meds and my mind cleared, and I'm like, huh, maybe other people have clear minds. <laughs> <laughs> so I admit I finally accepted that I had the illness once I really got on meds, and, and the meds have been enormously helpful. And you also had these personal experiences uh, in terms of being persuaded, gently persuaded. In Oxford, there was this, uh, if I remember correctly, there was a sense of, again, voluntary institutionalization. Right. And so it took you a long time before you, right. you decided that you were going to do that. But that also speaks to, at least in your case, the power and potential efficacy of techniques that are not forcibly directing someone in right. a particular way. If you right. treat someone with respect and you exactly. you you treat them as a human being exactly. and you're there for them, then eventually they will come to need that they will come to realize that they need help and that's what yeah. you're providing for them. That's ex you get it exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. I want to touch on something that is a little different. We talked about societal misconceptions of mental illness okay. and um, you talked about schizophrenia, confusing schizophrenia with multiple personality disorders and 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 the sense of uh, people with mental illness being violent and all the rest of that. Right. There's another misconception which I, I think exists among some people, which is a little bit further out there, which is almost a romanticized version of yeah. mental illness, right? Well, it's the genius. It's somebody right. who's... The mad who's, genius. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And that maybe you're lucky you're, you're touched with madness right. and, and so forth. Right. So what are, you, what are your... Actually, that's the name of a book by Kay Jamison, the bipolar psychologist called Touch With Fire. And she, I haven't read the book. I read her memoir called The Unquiet Mind. It's really wonderful. But in Touched by Fire, she talks about all the historical figures, artists and, and geniuses who had bipolar illness. Right. And actually there is you know, a sense and maybe even proof that um, people with bipolar disorder you know, tend, do often, are often very creative and, and artistic and, and smart and that kind of thing. I mean, when you're a little manic, you have huge amounts of energy and you know, can do a lot. Um, schizophrenia is a different thing. I mean, my understanding is you when you develop schizophrenia, you lose IQ points. And it's not mm. the case that there are many schizophrenics people who, who uh, you know, uh, have, have become very well known or geniuses or whatever. And, and you also mentioned that if it's, it remains untreated, then it can be degenerative in terms, exactly. of, in terms of your... your exactly, and it affects your brain, basically. Right. Get more brain damage. But the, these romanticized views of mental illness, uh, does that... Does that bother you or does it? Well, I, I think it may be a little bit unfortunate because uh, it sort of makes something good out of something bad, you know. It's mm -hmm. sort of like, you know, people really think that and they think it's frequent. They're, they're not really understanding where I am and how I feel. So it's a little, you know. And I think it encourages some people to, like, not want medication. Well, if I take medication, I'll stop being so smart and so bright and have such good ideas that will dampen my creativity and so on. My sense is there's not much evidence that that happens. Most people become more creative when they get medicated mm -hmm. rather than less. It's a sense of having a clear head as you exactly. were saying. Exactly.
So I have two more questions. Okay. Um, and this one, I'm guessing you're not going to expect. Um, you mentioned in your book that you went to Oxford and you were studying philosophy and you were studying Aristotle. Right. Um, and in fact, the, the inscription in your book is, is right. a quote by Aristotle. Aristotle and stuff. Yeah. So do you still read Aristotle? Is this something that, you, uh, that you're <laughs> I still I don't read in? him anymore, but I loved him for so many years. I, I carried him around like a, like a blanket right. in a way. <laughs> I haven't read Aristotle in years. That's a good question. Yeah. Um, but and, and I, I loved him at the time. I think he's just brilliant. Yeah. And you did study classics, and you you know I did. classical I, Greek, and so I, we just talked about I Thucydides did there. The, yeah, <laughs> I was really good at Greek. I don't think I would be anymore. It's been a long time since I've used it. But so there are no uh, there are no classical classical legal cases in this that you can <laughs> <laughs> turn your attention to. <laughs> um, it is kind of funny though when you look at other cases of the law. So there's a famous judge named Schraber. Uh, who wrote a book called um, Mem Memoir of My Men Nervous Illness. Hmm. He was a German judge, and Freud wrote a, a case study about it. Um, he believed, it's actually a funny story, and I wrote another interpretation, which I submitted for publication when I was on the teaching market. One of the schools I was looking at was Notre Dame. Hmm. And they said, well, what is this article about Schreber? And I said, well, you know, he's a German judge. He thought it was being... Uh, uh, zapped by the rays of God to bring forth a new race of man and woman. And she looked, the nun looked at me and said, what's wrong with that? <laughs> <laughs> but the funny thing is, his memoir is, is, is kind of funny. His memoir is totally insane. I mean, just not even close. And, but at the end, he appends a legal brief he wrote to get himself out of the hospital, which was so lucid and so compelling. Hmm. It was just, I forgot why I brought this up, but there was something that you had said that made me think of that. Uh... We were talking about Aristotle, and then you went to Freud and, and classical. Right. Oh, right. right, right, right. I don't remember exactly why. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but that's a, it's a good anecdote. Yeah. Do you have any others? Do you have any others? <laughs> <laughs> One last thing about, because uh, I was stumbling before when I was asking you this question about psychoanalysis. So mm -hmm. maybe I don't even really have a question, and maybe just a comment. But um, again, my sense... From, from reading your memoir was being a little bit bowled over at the importance of, at least in your case, of psychoanalysis. Right. And I would like to know, I would like to be directed as a, as a layperson who doesn't know very much about this, uh -huh. about whether or not you're an exceptional case right. or whether there is, uh, there, is a, there is a whole lot of uh, evidence out there to support the claim that psychoanalysis is extremely beneficial for many people who suffer from mental illness and whether or not it's evolving. I guess maybe that's my problem as someone of a scientific dis disposition. Right. I can say, look, we knew what the, uh, we knew what we knew about neurophysiology 20 years ago. We know, we know 10 years ago, five years ago, we have different scans, different technologies, different right. theories. So there's a sense of converging on some, some sense of, right. of, of what's happening, not maybe monotonically or whatever, but, right. but some sense, sense of, of convergence. Um, with psychoanalysis, it seems sort of like storytelling, what works, what doesn't work, right. behaviorist. I don't really know, you know, people thought something that was influenced 80 years ago by something else. Um, is it, can we say with some, some assurance that, yes, psychoanalysis is moving in a more productive direction, that it's learning from its past experiences, that it's helping more people? Maybe I shouldn't be asking well, I, you this, but yeah. this is my, my, my sense of what's going on there. I mean, I think there was a while when psychoanalysis claimed too much, overclaimed. We can help with 
not only with neuroses and not only with anxiety and not only with depression, but with psychosis itself. To me, the idea of treating psychosis with just analysis is a no-brainer. That, that just doesn't work. And to the extent that analysts thought that they could do that, they, they were mistaken. But it, I do think that a combination of medication and psychoanalysis can be extremely helpful for some people. And we need to figure out how we can identify those people um, and get them the resources if they are one of those people. Um, I mean, I think psychoanalysis is moving. I mean, I, I was did the intellectual part of a, or the academic part of psychoanalytic training. And there are, you know, there's self-psychology and there's intersubjectivity and there's yeah. object relations and it's not all classical Freudian drive, there, you know, theory. Right, yeah, I'd forgotten about that, that of course you, you did that yourself, which is I quite, did. quite unique. I did. I stopped treating patients after my book came out because I was like so far from being a blank screen <laughs> that it wasn't funny. Right. Um, but I never intended to do more than four or five hours a week anyway. I mean, I love my job. Um, but it was interesting to learn to learn the theory and to actually, I, I had uh, several therapy and analytic patients, so I had some experience being kind of on the other side of the couch. Right, so there was that, and there was also the, the community of people that you were doing this training with as well. Right. You, right. You, you write about that. Do you, are you still in touch with, with people? Oh, sure, in that, in sure. That yeah, my, my closest LA friend, my two closest LA friends are from my class at the Institute. And do they ever talk to you about, um, about cases and ask your advice or anything sure. like that? Sure, sure. I mean, obviously, being discreet and not of using course. names and of stuff course. like that. Yeah, of yeah, course. yeah, definitely, definitely. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that uh, we haven't? Talked I about? think I have a very thorough and thoughtful interview. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. It was a real pleasure meeting you. Same here. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback conversations about law along with separate discussions with Nita Farahani, Emily Hoffner-Burton, Elizabeth Loftus, and Julian Roberts. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.